If you think you need expensive GPUs to get started with artificial intelligence, then think again. Use your existing Intel Xeon processors on Dell PowerEdge servers to get started today, with exciting AI use cases from finance to healthcare and more. Dell EMC and Intel are proud to sponsor the AI thought leaders on the Voices in AI podcast. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Siraj Raval. He is the director of the School of AI. He holds a degree in computer science from Columbia University. Welcome to the show, Siraj. Thanks so much for having me, Byron. Um, I always like to start off just with definitions. What is artificial intelligence? And specifically, what's artificial about it? That's a great question. Uh, So AI, artificial intelligence, is actually, I like to think of it as a giant circle. So I'm a very visual person. So just imagine a giant circle, and we'll label that circle AI. Okay. And so inside of this circle, there are smaller circles, and these would be the subfields of AI. One of them would be heuristics. These are statistical techniques to try to play games a little better. So when Gary Kasparov was defeated by Big Blue, that was using heuristics. There's another bubble inside of this bigger AI bubble called machine learning. And that's really the, the, the hottest area of AI right now. And that's all about learning from data. So there's heuristics, there's learning from data, which is machine learning, and there is deep learning as well, which is a smaller bubble inside of machine learning. So AI, is more, it's, a, it's a very broad term. And people in computer science are always arguing about what is AI, what isn't AI. But I like to, but for me, I like to keep it simple. I think of AI as any kind of machine that mimics human intelligence in some way. Well, hold on a minute, though. You can't say artificial intelligence is a machine that mimics human intelligence because you just defined the word with what we're trying to get at. So, what's intelligence? That's a great question. Uh, intelligence is the ability to learn and apply knowledge. And we, we have a lot of it. Um, well, some of us anyway, I'm just kidding. But well, that's interesting I mean, we are, because, because yeah. Go, AlphaGo, let me actually, let me not do that one. Uh, the, the emphasis on it being able to learn um, is, is a pretty high bar. So something like my cat food dish that, uh, refills itself when the cat eats all the food, that isn't intelligent in your book, right? It's not learning anything new. It's, um, is that true? Uh, yeah, so that, it's not learning. So there, there has to be some kind, of, um, some kind of feedback, some kind of response to a stimulus. So whether that's from data or, or whether that's a statistical technique based on the number of wins versus losses, did this work, did this not work? It's got to have this, this feedback loop of something outside of it, something external to it is affecting it in the way that we perceive the world, something external to our heads, and that affects how we act in the world. So the smartest program in the world, once it's instantiated as a single program, uh, is no longer intelligent. Is that true? Because it stopped learning at that point. It can be as sophisticated as can be, but in your mind, if it's not learning something new, it's not intelligent. Um, that's a good question. Well, I mean, the, the, the point at which it would not need to learn or there would be nothing for it 
to learn would be the point in which to get kind of out there, it saturates the entire universe. Well, no, I mean, like, let's take AlphaGo. Let's say they decide, sure. hey, let's put out a let's put out a an iPhone version of Go, and let's just take the latest and greatest version of this. Let's make a great program that plays Go. At that point, it's no longer AI. If to if in, in if we rigidly follow your your uh, definition, because it stopped learning, it's now frozen, kind of in capability. Yeah, I can play it a thousand times, and in th- game thousand and one, it's not doing any better. Sure. Okay. Um, but to stick to my rigid definition, I said that intelligence is the ability to learn and apply knowledge. Right. So it would be doing the latter latter part. So, do you think that it's artificial in that it isn't really intelligence? It just looks like it. Like is is what a computer does actually intelligent, or is it mimicking intelligence, or is there a difference between those two things? Well, there, there are different kinds of intelligences in the world. I mean, um, think of it like a symphony of intelligences. Like um, our intelligence is really good at doing a huge range of tasks, but um, a dog has a certain type of um, has a certain type of intelligence that that keeps it more aware of things than we would be. Right? Dogs have superhuman hearing capability. So in that way. A dog is more intelligent than us for that specific task. So when we say artificial intelligence, you know, uh, it, it, the, talking about the AlphaGo example, that algorithm is better than any human on the planet for that specific task. It's a, it's a, it's a different kind of intelligence. It's a, it's a foreign, alien, artificial, you know, all of those words would kind of describe the, the, its, its capability. So you're the director of of School of AI. Uh, What is that? And tell me, tell me the mission and the what you're doing. Sure. So um, I've been making educational videos about AI on YouTube for the past couple years, and I decided, and I had the idea about I think nine months ago to have this call to action for people who watch my videos, and I and I had this idea of saying. Let's start an initiative where I'm not the only one teaching, but there are other people, and we'll call ourselves the School of AI, and we have one mission, which is to teach people how to use AI technology for the betterment of humanity for free. And so we're a nonprofit initiative, and since then, we have what are, what are, what are called deans, these um, 800 of them spread, spread out across the world, across 400 cities globally, and they're teaching people in their local communities from Harare, Zimbabwe, to Zurich, to South, you know, parts of South America. It, it's, a, it's a global community. They're, they're building their local school, school of AIs, you know, School of AI Barcelona, what have you. And it's, it's been an amazing, amazing couple months. It feels like every day I, I wake up, I look in our Slack channel, I see a picture of like you know, a bunch of students in say Mexico City and our School of AI logo there. And it's like, is this real? <laughs> but it is real. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's been a lot of fun so far. So put some flesh on those bones. What does it mean? to learn. So what are, what are people learning to do? Right. So, um, the, the guideline that we're following, we're talking about the betterment of humanity are the 17 sustainable development goals outlined by the United Nations. Um, uh, one of them would be, uh, no poverty, no extreme poverty, uh, sustainable action on the climate, um, 
things like that. So basically trying to fulfill the, the basic needs for humans, uh, both in developed and developing countries, so that eventually we can all reach that stage of self-actualization and be able to contribute and create and discover, which is what I think we humans are best at, not doing tri you know, trivial, laborious, repetitive tasks that's what machines are good for. So if we can teach our students, we call them wizards, if we can teach our wizards how to use this technology to automate all of that away, then we can get to a, a world where all of us are contributing to the, to the betterment, to, to the progress of our species, whether it's in science or art, et cetera. But specifically, what are, what are people learning to do like on a day-to-day on a -day basis? Sure. So uh, one example uh, would be classifying images. And that's a very generic example, but we can use that example to say, help farmers in parts of South Africa to detect plants that are diseased, that are not diseased. Another example would be um, anomaly detection. So kind of finding the needle in the haystack. What, what here doesn't fit in with the rest? And that can be applied to fraud detection, right? If you've got thousands and thousands of transactions um, one of them is a fraud, um, and, and an AI can learn what that fraud is better than any human could because it's just so much data. Uh, so those are two. Um, I can give some more. There's, there's quite a lot. Uh, but no, but anything I mean, that, what's the glue? So is the idea that there just aren't enough people that have the basic skills to, quote, do AI, and you're trying to fill that gap? That That is... That is what it is, and it's also, uh, yeah, so that's what it is in that uh, this the, the, the concepts behind this, techno this technology, the mathematical concepts, um, I don't believe are accessible yet to a, to a wide enough audience. So uh, we at School of AI are trying to broaden that audience and trying to make it accessible, you know, not just to developers, but eventually to, you know, everybody. You know, moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, people who, you know, people who just, you, you, they're not like the most technical people. We're trying to reach them and, and make this something that everybody does because we, we sincerely believe that this is going to be a part of our lives and eventually everybody is going to be implementing AI in some way or another. And it doesn't necessarily have to be code. It can be through some application or some kind of drag and drop interface, but uh, it's definitely the future of work. So yeah, that, that, that's what it is. And also, it's the fact that we are facing so many uh, huge problems, daunting problems as a species, existential threats. And we think that it's not, we might not be good enough alone to, to solve these problems. Climate change, for example, a lot of people think that it's too late to, to, to solve climate change. But we think that we have a dirt, we have, we have a huge amount of data available. And we think that the answers to some of the hardest problems related to CO2 emission and how we can allocate resources uh, for that goal, they, they, they lie hidden in that data. And using AI, we can, we can find them. I, I, I want to get to all of that in a moment. I'm still trying to kind of understand what, what a student actually learns to do doing this? Is there a structured curriculum you work through? Is it videos that you watch? I mean, like what, is it Coursera style with Andrew Ng's, you know, AI course and you like, what, what does the day-to-day -day look like for a student who's trying to absorb all this information? 
It's a great question. So right now we have several courses. Um, right now, the most popular course that our students are into is my data science in three months course. And that course is the three-month course that takes people from beginner, like never having coded before, to uh, being able to start applying to entry-level jobs as a, as a data analyst or any kind of data-related role. So that's, that's the one right now. And inside of that course, we start off with a mathematical foundation for what data science is. It involves concepts like probability theory and statistics. Uh, and then we move on to applications like, uh, you know, using a data set to, say, detect uh, what parts of a budget are the best for a specific goal. Um, so financial allocation, um, decision making, task planning, routing algorithms, you know, routing. So all the applications we use at this point, most of them, the major ones, use AI at some point. So the question is, it's, it's more becoming, the question is, is now leaning towards what is not AI at this point when it comes to the applications that we're using in our day-to-day -day lives. But I mean, is there like a, a curriculum you work through from beginning to end and then some certification that sits at the end or is it like, yes. So tell me what that certification is and like, how long does it take to get and what is it? in your mind, kind of qualify you to do? Sure. So it's a three-month curriculum. It's called Data Science in Three Months. And there's a midterm and there's a final. And we're grading it. It's me and a team of seven instructors. Uh, and it's, it's online at the School of AI. And uh, it's on my YouTube channel as well. There's also an, And the certification allows you to... And we're, we're just now starting to see some of these certifications come up that students are completing the course. It's been a while. But uh, it allows you to start applying to jobs, and then it would be the equivalent of just brand association. You know, we're trying to build a really solid curriculum course, a good brand, and then the idea is that these employers would say, oh, School of AI, I know about that. It's a great course. Sure, if this person took it there, then they know what they're doing. So it's a bet. Uh, we're definitely trying to keep the quality high, but it's also a decentralized school. You know, we have 400 cities, so it's not just data science in three months. That's my curriculum that I created. But these deans are creating their own curriculums in their own languages in Spanish. And, you know, reinforcement learning is another course, Move 37. You know, we just finished that. And decentralized applications, how to build technology that combines AI and blockchain together to create uh, financial applications that were not possible before, tokenizing assets, using AI to allocate how machines uh, and humans uh, pay each other and what that relationship looks like. Uh, but there is, there is always a certification at the end of whatever curriculum it is. And jobs are definitely something that make us happy to see our students get as an end, as an end goal, whether it's a job or a research position, working at an NGO, uh, just bettering their life. So your mission is to to use AI to, to solve these problems, but I assume most of the students who consume the content are looking to acquire skills that make them more employable. Is that true, or am I wrong? You're you're true. That's that's that you're right. Yes. Yeah. So what's kind of the glue between all these people that are learning these skills and um and mustering that? To, to advance the mission that you were talking about a little earlier? 
So as a society, we haven't properly uh, approximated the relationship between value and capital yet. You know, there are companies that are putting, you know, tons and tons of tons of sludge into the oceans and they're getting paid a lot to do that. So that's that's one example. And meanwhile, there are people who are volunteering in their local communities, but they're not getting paid anything. But they should because they're benefiting other people's lives. But we think with advances in blockchain technology and this idea of tokenization, which has been such a crazy, um, wild, you know, dot com bubble kind of deal. We think there is some sliver of hope there in that we can more closely approximate the relationship between value and capital. And that would be, in this case, creating a startup that would help with one of the sustainable development goals and be profitable. And we're starting to see that happen now. And that's, that's kind of where, where we're trying to go to, looking for that perfect intersection between social impact and profitability. You're saying that you're trying to do that as a company or you're empowering your graduates to do that? Exactly. We're, we're empowering our graduates to do that. So one of the things that I, that's made, in my view, AI advance so much, I mean, you hear all the normal things. We get more data and faster computers and all of that. But the toolkits are simply just becoming better and more robust and more numerable, and you know, you've got all, all kinds of things that make, make it much simpler, but still, you know, it's still reasonably hard to... Um, right. But the technology is changing so much. Do you, do you think your courses have an inherent shelf life that they're all going to constantly have to be redone because just the tools are just going to become so high level very quickly that um, just the amount of stuff people will have to know to use the technology should decline. Yeah, no, definitely my videos, my courses, it all has a shelf life. You know, um, if I were to put a number on it, I would probably say like maybe two to five years max, two to five years max. So, uh, Tell me one of your, taking your, your 17 problems, problem areas, um, tell me how you inspire us with how AI can be used to solve some of them. Sure. So the SDGs, as we so lovingly call them, are uh, very ambitious goals. No poverty, clean water and sanitation, gender equality. Um, one of them is quality education, uh, which is one that I'm particularly passionate about. Uh, and right now, education is an expensive endeavor. Uh, we need look no farther than our own country. It's, it's, you know, there are a lot of students. I have friends who have a lot of student loans from college. Um, it's not a good thing. It, it prevents them from fulfilling their full potential. Uh, and what we can do is we can use AI to provide a personalized education to people for a much lower cost. One example would be uh, an AI teacher. It knows you, it, it learns from you, it learns what you like, you give it some feedback, and it will learn what, what your problem areas and then give you suggestions that are hyper-personalized. You know, teachers have to spread their attention across their classroom, but an AI can focus, can also can both spread its attention and hyper-focus on the individual. So that would be one, an AI for education, a, a, a chatbot for education. And so, 
there are a lot of people who are concerned that the technology can be used equally efficiently to to pursue goals that uh, are far less noble than that. How, what what? How do you kind of wrap your head around that? Um, for instance, you know, you yeah. could say, well, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, technology is like fire. It can be used to burn us or to give us warmth. A tool is just a tool. It all depends on how we use it. So one of our values at School of AI is choose love, not fear. So we have seven values. So we're trying to not just embed this technology. You know, the facts are just facts. People can just go on Google and search whatever it is they need, step one through six, and there we go. You know how to do it. What we're trying to do is embed a set of values into this ecosystem that, in it, that points people in the right direction of what to do with this technology. As to your question of or, or your supposition of people, you know, somebody using AI for not as noble a cause, of course that's going to happen. It's already happening in China and in the U.S. and just all over the world. It's happening right now. What can we do about it? Well, we can be, become more aware of its, how it's being used to exploit people. And that's, that's really the first step. And we're trying to do that. Keep, make people aware of that and uh, hopefully avoid any kind of disaster-like scenario. So your mission, is, according to the website, is to offer a world-class AI education to anyone on Earth for free. And yet, does your, does your business... School of AI um, get revenue from another source, or is it? You said it's a nonprofit. Is it? Does it rely on donations, or how are you funding that mission? Great question. So I have my own business, which is my YouTube videos, and currently I am funding it all myself. So sometimes, you know, maybe once a month I'll say yes to a to a potential client to do a sponsored video. The last one was Intel, and uh, that's really the main revenue source. Uh, there are others, YouTube ads. And um, but I, I, don't, I don't really like the idea of asking for donations. You know, I, 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 I didn't really think too much about it until, you know, we, I started getting some requests for, you know, funds from different chapters of ours for, you know, swag and things like that, venue space. Um, and I just gave it to them directly because I'm not trying to ask people for donations. It's just not how I work. So I would rather just make that money and then just fund, make that money personally, and then just continue to fund the nonprofit initiative. Do you worry that that approach, though, uh, might slow your growth and leave out people who 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 want to support it? Um, do I worry that it would slow my growth? I am always worried about the fact that we're not growing fast enough. So that worries me, but just in general, yes, I'm worried. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are people who want to support it. And uh, at some point we can start asking for donations. I'm sure I just haven't had the bandwidth to set that up, but I will, we will. So what, what are the, some of the challenges you have found when you have been doing this? Great question. Uh, one of them would be just uh, keeping everybody on the same page. So we have deans that speak, you know, over 120 different languages. There's cultural differences. Uh, it's a lot to try to unite the community. It takes a lot of um, time and attention and energy and focus for me on how to do that. And so far, one challenge has been not appreciating certain people in the community enough 
Uh, that's, you know, my own fault. And I, something that I've learned in the past three months is how to better value your team and how to empower your, your team in better ways. And this, I'm just lear- I'm learning this. So that's, that's been a big challenge is like working with people, basically working with people has been a challenge. It's not something that I'm used to. I usually just make my YouTube videos by myself and I'm in my zone, but now it's not just me. So. And is this what you, what you do with like all of your waking hours or do you have other, other things that keep you um, occupied professionally or is this your sole endeavor? This is my sole endeavor. Uh, yeah, this is my sole endeavor. And you have something like half, half a million subscribers on YouTube or something like that? Yeah, we're about to hit half a million actually in like six hours, which is, it's been a while. So I'm, I'm very happy. And so when you come out with, how often are you putting out new videos? So I do three a week, three, three videos a week on my YouTube channel. And what would be some of the topics, like give me some, some, or give our listeners some examples of, of like what would be coming out last week or this week or next week? Sure. So um, my latest video just came out yesterday. It's called an AI that dresses itself. And a team at Google Brain and Georgia Tech created this animated character video that is putting a shirt on itself. It looks very realistic and it's kind of uncanny, uh, but it's very cool. And it's actually also very difficult to understand. I mean, the paper was actually very difficult. But what I did was I synthesized that, how it works, turned it into an explainable concept, and then showed the applications of how we could use this, which the paper didn't show because scientists aren't the best at showing the applications of their uh, of, of what they've discovered. Um, and so in that case, it would be for gaming, for fashion, for elder care. You know, so one example would be people with ALS. So over 30 million people suffer from ALS, which is a disease that you get when you're older, which makes, you know, you can die from bending over. So you can also even die from, you know, doing a weird contortion. So, you know, perhaps we can have robots that help uh uh, people in assisted living facilities dress themselves, which would give them a more dignified and independent life. Um, so there are a lot of like, you know, ways that we can use this technology that we didn't originally think about. It just takes a little bit of time and belief in the power of it to do good. And then one more thing. So today I'm actually really excited because I have a video on AI in China coming out in 10 hours, which covers so many topics from, so, from social credit scoring to algorithmic policing to Confucianism. They have a whole different set of values and they're not Western, but they're still dominating the space. Uh, it's just a really, really fascinating. It was really fascinating for me to really deep dive into China and why, like what their intentions are and why they're going so in on AI compared to every other country, including us. Uh, but yeah. So you mentioned sh- social credit. Um, explain that to, to our listeners and, and kind of weigh in on, on, from an AI perspective, what they're trying to do and how they might go about it and, and all of the rest. Sure. So in China, um, they have set up this system called the social credit scoring system. And any action that an, a citizen takes um, that is able to be recorded will be recorded whether that's through surveillance cameras, and there are a lot, and there are a lot being installed, thousands and thousands and thousands. Or some, you know, booking a train, uh, whether it's 
using a service, WeChat, for example. You know, WeChat is an incredible app. We have nothing like it in the U.S. You know, it's like WhatsApp on steroids. Not only can you message people, you can, you know, book train tickets and invest in stocks and social network and pay off your mortgage or pay your mortgage every month. So, uh, and so that gives the government a lot of data because they control WeChat. So they can see literally everything. And so the social credit scoring system is the, is the government's initiative to take all of your actions and compile it into a single number that represents your reputation. And this reputation then governs what you are and are not able to do everything from going to a certain place, like to like um, getting a certain discount on a product. And I mean, we have it in the U.S. Like we 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 have credit scores, but it's nowhere near as um, Orwellian as it is in China. And then the second part of your question was, how is AI being used for it? Um, so for surveillance, for example, AI is being used to detect who you are. So facial detection—that's AI. The features of your face—it's learned how to detect features on a face, and then using that to identify who you are, finding your social credit score, and then watching you see what you do. And if you do the wrong or right thing, depending on the values that they've set, they'll change your your, your credit score. So you made an oblique reference earlier, I think, to an artificial general intelligence. Just in passing. Um, I think something about as long as we don't kill ourselves along the way or something like that with it. Uh, do you think that is, so obviously the school of AI is teaching people very nuts and bolts how to, um, about narrow AI and that specifically about machine learning. Um, what do you think about a general intelligence? Do you think you'll live to see it for instance? Uh, that's a great question. So when I was traveling through India for the first time, so I was born in the U.S., but my, my parents are from there. So it was a very interesting experience visiting there for six months through the, the entire country. And I saw so much poverty and pollution, uh, things that I've never saw growing up in the U.S. And it really struck me in that I, I just came to this conclusion of if we're going to be if, if we're going to actually solve these massive, massive problems in our lifetime, we're going to need an artificial general intelligence to do it. Something that's just thousands of times smarter than our entire species combined, because these are some really hard problems. Now that I've spent, you know, about three years studying and teaching it and all this stuff, I'm not as I'm not as um, I guess I'm not as um, reliant on this external AGI God to solve everything because I can see that really behind all AI, there's a human. A human, uh, a human is the one who trains this model, the statistical model. They decide what the data is going to be. They decide what the objective for the model is going to be. The human intent is always going to be there. There will always be a human in the loop somehow. And on a somewhat related note, four weeks ago, I visited D-Wave in Vancouver. I learned, started learning about quantum mechanics, and now I'm not even so sure that consciousness is completely, um, completely coming from the brain. Maybe there's some entanglement properties there. Maybe there's a universal consciousness. We don't know. I don't know. I'm not making any claims. But I am saying that it's not – I don't think reality is as simple as – I thought it was before where it was like, oh, just create an AGI, it'll solve everything. Um, we can't just offload that responsibility. It's gotta, it's gotta come from us. It's interesting, uh, you're remarking about consciousness. 
because it seems you're implying that a general intelligence would have to have consciousness. Is that, do you think that is the case? It would have to experience, it would have to be able to feel warmth as opposed to measuring temperature. Do you believe that to be the case? Exactly. Exactly. I a hundred percent believe that. And that, we don't know what consciousness is. That a general intelligence would have to be con- conscious to, to be. I, a, I 100% believe that, yeah. It would have to be conscious. Why is that? Well, for instance, let me set the problem up a little, a little better. Um, mm-hmm. People say we don't know what consciousness is. This isn't really technically true. We know what it is. We just don't know how it is that it comes about. What it is is the experience of being you. It is... Um, the, the fact that you experience the world, you feel warmth, and a computer can only measure temperature. Now, it could be some would maintain that intelligence and consciousness don't have anything to do with each other. For instance, when you're, um, we've all had the experience of driving, and then you kind of space, and, mm-hmm. and a minute later, you kind of snap to and be like, oh, I don't even remember driving. While you were doing that, you were acting intelligently. You were merging with traffic and signaling and changing lanes and doing all of that. So you were able to act intelligently without experiencing the world. Now, there's a lot of problems with that, but it's trying to set up, you know, the, the, the question is, could a zombie be intelligent? You know, could something that just, that, that doesn't experience the world, it just kind of, you know, a robot, just a robot uh, going through its day-to-day life, as it were, might be able to mimic, your behavior perfectly, but never actually feel the emotions that you feel. So interestingly, you say, no, that robot could not mimic what I do unless it could experience the pain that I, and and heartache that I feel. No. So, okay. So no. Okay. So I, well put. Uh, So let me, let me, well said. So let me just say this. So yes, a robot could mimic what I do without feeling consciousness in the way that I do. So I do think that, but, um, the reason that that's not contradicting what you said earlier is that when I de- when I define AGI, it has to include consciousness for me, because to me, a, an artificial general intelligence is equivalent to a human intelligence in every way, except in the way that, uh, the medium that it lives on. So while we're biological, it could live on silicon or you know, graphene or some other medium. But I wouldn't consider it a general intelligence unless it encompassed every aspect of what we are. But then at that moment, it would have rights the same as we have. That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would. It would. It, and then it, you I mean, couldn't it would. ethically program it to do anything, right? Because then all you've done is brought back a problem you know from from our past right you can't essentially enslave you could, it. you could enslave it though i mean have you seen black mirror <laughs> you could enslave it though you no could, i'm you saying could, you can ethically have, ethically do that if it if it experiences the world you can't necessarily make it plunge your toilet right you could but ethically, ethically. speaking you're right ethically so the minute you would not it becomes want to conscious it actually becomes far less useful to us. 
Now I can't send it in to defuse the bomb anymore. Yeah. So you really don't yeah, want to. Well, if its values are misaligned with our own, yeah, sure. Well, no, it, if it has any values at all, you can't. It, it has rights co-equal with our own at that point, doesn't it? If we created an artificial general intelligence that experienced consciousness in the way that we do, mm-hmm. uh, we would have, yeah, absolutely no say in the future of anything. It would be a god because it could scale itself in a way that we couldn't. Well, that's an interesting thesis. That's a super intelligent. That's Nick Bostrom's thesis, basically that it'll have an IQ of a hundred, then a thousand, then ten thousand, then a million. Then I mean, I don't think he puts it quite that way, but. The idea is it would eventually be, quote, so smart that it could no longer even, like, we're not even on its radar. We, we don't even matter. Um, aside from that being the plot of a movies, what, what evidence do you have that that's even possible? For instance, your iPhone or whatever, your smartphone of choice doesn't exhibit any of that kind of behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it what, does not. No. And so, you know, we don't want to do this thing of reasoning from fictional evidence where we see Black Mirror enough and we say, ah, oh, that could happen. That could really happen. So what kind of as an AI person, what do you, what do you think the argument is that that can ever happen? Well, um, there is the idea, I mean, one theory of consciousness is that it just requires a sufficient level of complexity um, before consciousness starts to emerge. So maybe we could imagine consciousness as a spectrum and, you know, uh, rats have a certain level, but if you up that, then you get to dogs. And if you up that, you get to humans. And right now computers are like below rats. You just got to keep love. We, we have to keep leveling up the layers of complexity. So in terms of, you know, in terms of the models that we know about in AI, whether that's so specifically a neural network, add more layers, more data, uh, and just create level after level of abstraction of hierarchy until we get to emotions, you know, and then we just keep going from there. And then maybe even extending past that. So it could be even more conscious than we are, uh, which could be the case. So, as well, right? I mean, could the internet already be there, though? I mean, it... the internet could. Um, I I mean, that's it's too decentralized, right. and there's not really an order, an overall order. Fair enough. So, yeah. Um. So do you believe that we, in the end, how do you net it all out? Do you think that we will end up building, you, you, when I ask you, do you think you'll live to see a general intelligence? You said, I no longer believe it's necessary to solve all of our problems. Um, do you think we're actually going to build one in your mind? I think we're going to um, instead enhance our own intelligence rather than create this external intelligence and we're, so, we're, we're doing that by go ahead so this trick we've learned that we've had good luck with recently that just machine learning it says let's take a lot of data about the past and let's study it and make projections into the future right yep 
Yep. Do you think that is going to get us, like, it only works when the future is like the past, right? A, a cat tomorrow works. looks like a cat today. Um, right. You take stuff about the past, data, you study it, and you make projections into the future. That's, that's all it does. And some things it's easy to do, like chess. We have a lot of data about the past. The, the, the rules of the game don't change, and so we can project into the future. But, but there's a lot of things that don't necessarily behave that way. So is machine learning really all that extensible of a trick? Is it going to, for instance, could machine learning um, solve for the Turing test, in your view? Uh, so uh, at Google's last, uh, at Google I.O., uh, they demoed their, I don't know if you saw it, but the barbershop uh, AI that like did the entire full pipeline of calling up the barbershop scheduling the appointment saying um <laughs> to like mimic like a human right but if you ask it what's bigger a nickel or the sun it wouldn't know true okay so a general turing test um right anything yeah. like i could say this <clears throat> dr smith was eating lunch at his favorite restaurant when he got a phone call uh looking worried he jumps up and runs out the door forgetting to pay his tab will management prosecute him would they do you think um that's a good one so he's uh, a doctor he just got a call and ran out without paying his bill are they going to call the police his favorite restaurant so they it, know him there right i don't think they would call the police. right now so how much would an ai have to know to be able to answer that like oh he's a doctor that means he probably got an emergency call oh that would make sense that's why he got worried and ran out. Oh, he comes there. A lot. I mean, like so many layers of knowledge. You really think, do you think there's enough database, there's enough words in the world, in the universe, that an AI could just study like every prior conversation and, and answer that question? Yeah, I mean, in theory, yes. I mean, we're doing the same thing, right? We're, we're making these predictions based on past data. We don't have access to future data. Well, We're not an AI, but a, no, right? but but we do something machines can't, which is we do transfer learning uh, effortlessly, and they don't. So let me let me ask you to picture two fish. Um, now, let's say you're out fishing in a river, and you catch a trout. Okay. Okay. And then you go home, and you put, and you're a, you're a scientist, and you put that trout in a jar of formaldehyde. And then I, and then a week passes, and I, I ask you the following questions. Uh, I'm going to ask you. So consider the fish when it was in the river, and consider the fish now. Um, is it the same temperature? Uh, probably not. Is it the same weight? Mm, probably not. Does it smell the same? No. See, like I could go all day long, and you've never done that, but but and you would know exactly what attributes transfer over and which ones don't, and but you can do it across any number of things, and so I've always just felt that how we do conversation just doesn't look anything like machine learning. It's why machine learning can't, you know, why every Turing test candidate I've ever seen when I say what's bigger, a nickel or the sun, none of them have ever done it. 
Um, I mean, it's, but people get it instantly. You know, a child can do it. People can do this thing. It's very interesting. Like, if you show a little kid four photographs of cats, a little kid, four-year-old, mm-hmm. and then you're out walking around and, and you see one of those Manx cats, you know, the ones without the tail, the kid will say, look, uh-huh. there's a cat without a tail. And yet they, you never told them there was such a thing as a cat without a tail. Every cat they knew had a tail. And yet we somehow come pre-wired to be able to do all of this. That I wonder if machines are able to do. So do you think with a big enough machine learning model studying a big enough corpus of data, you can pass the Turing test? Yes, that's a short answer. But also on, to, to that point you were making about um, transfer learning in children, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely have some pre-wired uh, evolutionary traits in our head. And right now, a lot of the times when we're creating these AI models, we randomly initialize the weights or the, you know, the starting point of the model itself, a bunch of ones and zeros. But ideally, we have a smarter weight initialization period, which kind of um, is analogous to us being born. Like we... We don't have a random weight initialization in our head. We, we have a smarter weight initialization based on, you know, I could have arachnophobia because my ancestor got almost got killed by a spider or whatever. So we definitely need to build better transfer learning techniques. I think smarter weight initialization is one way forward there. Uh, and you, then, yeah, so I, Don't you think it's interesting that we don't know how thoughts are encoded in the brain? Like if I said, hey, Suraj, what color was your first bicycle? You could probably answer that, mm-hmm. even though there's not some part of your brain that stores the colors of bicycles or like there's no place in your brain where that's stored. And, and you, you know, a computer just always struck me as so different than a person, than a brain that I even think calling them neural nets is just kind of a cheat because I don't think the brain behaves anything like that. I think it just kind of, I mean, we even say the computer thinks when I don't even know if computers think or not. So it seems that I think you seem more optimistic about these techniques and mapping human ability to them than I am. But I, I will I will assure all of our readers that you're very much in the minority on the, in the majority on this point, and I'm very much in the minority. But uh, how special? Well, I mean, we don't have to take Go people ahead. are like human creativity. Is that do you get that from machine learning? Uh, you can get creative outputs. Uh, there is, there are projects like Magenta by Google that are trying to create models that will generate music compositions. Yeah, and I mean, you can train feed them like Bach, and they can make passable Bach, and you can feed them a photograph, and they'll make it impressionistic or something. But do you actually see a computer writing, you know, the Harry Potter novels through machine learning? It's definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible. I mean, uh, we've already used AI to create TV scripts that was acted out by that Silicon Valley dude, which I mean, okay, yes, it wasn't that great a script, I'll admit, but that was like a starting point. Uh, but I want to I also clarify that I do think that there should and will be a human in the loop. So when it comes to the creative processes, we shouldn't be thinking about it like, uh, the robots are going to be creative, are going to be more creative than us. It's a co-evolutionary process. So one example would be my friend, Taryn Southern. She created the first pop album using AI and completely using AI. And so she would suggest, you know, a certain pattern of beats to the system. And then 
it would modify it and suggest something in a different way to her that she didn't think about before. And then she would use that to then go back and suggest something else. So it's this back and forth co-evolutionary creative process that we're going to start seeing more of, not just in the music domain, but any kind of artistic or creative domain. So you don't believe humans exhibit any behaviors that aren't... See, I've always thought that machine learning is really not a, a particularly broad tool, that it works for certain kinds of problems very well. You know, like games where it's a constrained universe and there's a finite number of choices and, and whatnot. But I've always suspected we're going to need completely different techniques to get a lot of human capabilities mapped over. Um, so do you don't think there's any human behavior, and, and I'm not calling consciousness a behavior, any human ability that your gut tells you we won't be able to replicate using this trick, study data about the past projected into the future? My gut tells me that no, there's nothing that we won't be able to recreate. <clears throat> yeah, except right, what you talked about, you know, consciousness. All right. Well, I think we're coming up on time here. Um, so let's look two things. One, how do people find out more about School of AI and how do people find out more about you and what you're doing? So start with School of AI. Sure. Where do they go? So it's the website is theschool.ai. That's it, theschool.ai. And then uh, for me, if you just search Siraj on YouTube, S-I-R-A-J, uh, you find my channel. Uh, Siraj Raval is my name. And uh, yeah, I'll be, I release three, three new videos every week. So, all right. Well, Siraj, it has been a fascinating 50 minutes chatting about all of this. I'm, I'm, uh, I think we could go another 50 minutes. I wish time allowed, but um, I wish you the best of luck. It sounds like a, a noble pursuit. For sure. Thanks so much, Byron. If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend you also tune in to the AI podcast produced by our friends at Dell EMC and Intel, using technology to solve some of the toughest challenges on the planet. The AI podcast is available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.